2 Thessalonians, we're going to do verses 5 through 10 today. And the title is Christ Our Avenger, which is an interesting title for Jesus, maybe. And it reminds me, when I was a youth pastor, one of my favorite icebreakers to try and get the kids to talk is to ask them who their favorite Avenger was. You all maybe have seen a few of these movies. And I found that how they answered that question revealed an awful lot about them. (laughs) And they would sit there and think about it for a while, and somebody would pick Spider-Man, and somebody would pick Thor. And, of course, the correct answer was Captain America or you're a communist. But But I always loved doing that because it it just, you learn something about the kid. You learn about which one is going to be a contrarian and pick something that nobody else wants. Who's going to pick what everybody else did, right? It's an icebreaker. It helps. And it was always fun when I would read some of these passages in Scripture, because these movies, of course, were so popular, because the Bible calls God an avenger, too. Psalm 99, verse 8, and 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 6, both say that God is our avenger. What does that mean? An avenger is somebody who exacts revenge, right? Somebody who repays a wrong that has been done to somebody else. God sees the suffering of his people, and he vows in the passage we're going to read today and in several others that he will repay what has been done to his people. He will repay the evil that has been done to them. He also will repay the good that you have done that you feel nobody sees. God is an avenger. And this passage, as we saw at the end of last week, is dealing largely with persecution. And we talked about persecution a few weeks ago. We talked about how in China, people under the age of 18 are no longer permitted to go to church. It's the state's attempt to phase out Christianity. And there's, of course, terrible things going on everywhere. But let's get a little more close to home. On May 20th last year, there was a church in Holly Spring, Mississippi, that was burned to the ground And the rubble was defaced with graffiti that said, Bet you stay home now, you hypocrites. The church had, as many did, decided they were not going to close. However you feel about that is immaterial to what we're talking about. Somebody burned down a church in Mississippi. You maybe have heard, especially if you were following the Calvary Chapel Magazine's website, but on the 28th last week, the Ninth Circuit Court in California ruled against Calvary Christian Fellowship in San Jose that the state of California does in fact have the authority to prohibit or shut down indoor church meetings. And if you're like me, my opinion is, I don't know how, how aggressively that's going to be used this time, but you take something like that and you stick it in the government's back pocket and now there's precedent and it causes us to be concerned. We see things like that and I've not been alive for very long, but it doesn't really resemble the country that I grew up in in a lot of ways. Persecution is on the rise here. It's on the rise abroad. And we've got to be prepared to endure it. And that's what this passage is all about. It addresses the purpose of our suffering. It, it addresses the, the here and now and what God is doing through the suffering that we go through. But then when you get into verse 6 and following, it launches into the future. And it explains the coming vengeance of the Lord, the coming vindication of those who belong to Christ, and the coming retribution against the enemies of the gospel. 
depending on where you stand with Jesus Christ, this is either going to be one of the most comforting or one of the most frightening messages you've ever heard. Because this passage does not mess around with the truth. Because Jesus Christ is an avenger. And while that is comforting for those who are on his side, for those who stand against him, that's a troubling thing. So let's read verse 5. And we'll begin just with that verse. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. In the Greek text, verse 3 through verse 10 are one sentence. There is no break in this section. English cannot handle run-on sentences quite as well as Greek can. Maybe you learned that back in school. So the translators have broken it up into different sentences to make it easier to digest, and that's fine. But those words, this is, are actually not even there in the Greek text. It would just end verse 4 by saying, in all your persecutions and the afflictions that you are enduring, evidence of the righteous judgment of God. So this is is perfectly appropriate. But what they're doing is they're pointing backwards to what we talked about last time and saying that that is evidence that the judgment of God is, in fact, righteous. And he gives us here the purpose of suffering and persecution for Christians. So if you ever said, oh, God, why, when you've gone through something, it tells you right here that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. Considered is is an accounting term, that you may be counted or reckoned or proven and established to be worthy of the kingdom of God. Real quick definition for you, what is the kingdom of God? We've been through this before, so I'll give you the precise definition and then we'll back off and we'll deal with the broad one. But the kingdom of God is the 1,000-year millennial reign of Christ that we're looking forward to. Revelation 20 talks about this. The Old Testament is full of descriptions of when the son of David reigns from Jerusalem. Jesus went throughout the nation of Israel, and he was not saying, accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. He was saying, repent for what? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. That thing that David and all the prophets talked about, it's almost here. Of course, without getting into a bunch of the details, the Jews did not receive their king, did they? They nailed him to a cross. And so Jesus said, your, your house is now left to you desolate until you receive me as your king finally. So we're still waiting for that kingdom to be established. Now we say, is that heaven? Well, kind of. The Bible says that when a Christian dies, to be absent with the body is to be present with the Lord. So the Lord is in heaven. So that's why we say when we die, we go to heaven. But what is really exciting is that After what the Bible calls the seven years of tribulation, Jesus is going to come to earth and make heaven on earth, really. And we call that the kingdom, and it's going to last for a thousand years, and God's going to tie up Satan and saying, no more out of you for a while. And then at the end of that, the Bible says the Lord is going to recreate the heavens and the earth. How awesome is that? So knowing that, when he says that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, He says, the thousand-year reign is coming. The Bible says that we will rule and reign with Christ in that time. We will judge angels. And you look at you, and you say, that doesn't seem right. God's going to put me in charge of some angel? I'm going to rule it. Do you know me? Have you seen me? And so we say, God, is that judgment righteous? 
He says, well, you're suffering that you may be counted worthy. That as you suffer and go through persecution, as you live your life, it prepares you for that. It demonstrates that, in fact, God has regenerated you, like the Bible says, that the Holy Spirit does dwell in you. The way you handle suffering demonstrates if you're ready for the kingdom. Isn't that cool? It, it puts a new perspective on the things we go through, huh? Now, this does not mean that you're saved by works, that you've got to handle suffering properly in order to get saved. Ephesians 2 says that by grace you are saved through faith, not of works. So we can dispense with that. Nor does this mean, as some people have taught, that suffering is the path to salvation. That the more you suffer, the more saved you are. And then anytime you do something and get in trouble for it, you can say, well, Jesus is just getting me ready. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 15, he says, if you're going to suffer, make sure you suffer for Christ, not for something stupid. <laughs> Don't suffer as an evildoer, as a thief, and then say, oh, God is just preparing. He says, no, 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 no. But our suffering does matter. Our suffering is important. And I've got three things I'm going to run through very quickly here. Why does our suffering matter? Number one, when we suffer, especially through suffering with Christ or for Christ, number one, we identify with his death. Did not Jesus himself endure suffering that was unfair, didn't he? Persecuted by the wicked of the righteous. So we identify with the death of Christ. Paul says in Philippians is that I may become like him in his death, sharing in his sufferings. We know that we want to be like him in his resurrection, so we shouldn't shy away from being like him in his sufferings and in his death. Number two, we grow in our likeness to Christ. We talked about this last time, so I won't get into it too much. The more you suffer and go through pain, like James chapter 1 says, it produces steadfastness. And steadfastness will produce all kinds of godly character. So the Lord uses your suffering and persecution to finish sanctifying you. And number three, we prove our loyalty to Christ. Talk is cheap, isn't it? Lots of folks talk about how much they love Jesus and how much they love their Bible and how Christian they are. But when the mobs start coming for the church, when the bricks start getting thrown, that's when it shows who's really walking with Jesus Christ. So as Christians, we're not particularly afraid to suffer or to be persecuted, are we? In fact, suffering for Christ is, you could say, the mark of a Christian. In Acts chapter 5, verse 41, the apostles were taken into the Sanhedrin's chambers. They were commanded not to preach in the name of Jesus. They had already said, we're not listening to you, we're going to preach. They were beaten with rods. Remember in the Passion of the Christ when they had those big long sticks and they're beating Jesus? All the apostles went through that. And they walked away from that, it says, rejoicing. Because they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. Can you imagine that? Those rods are being whacked against their backs and their thighs and their buttocks and they're, they're crying out. They can barely walk. They can barely hold themselves up. And maybe halfway through that, one of the disciples finally cries out, Fellas, we're worthy. Just like he said. And then now through the pain, they're laughing and they're singing and they're crying out to the Lord. And as they stumble home, dragging each other through the streets, their, their tears of joy are running down their face. Because they know that that suffering is working these things out in them. That it is shown. They said, Jesus said, if they hated me, they're going to hate you because you belong to me. He said, they hate us, which means we must belong to him. How amazing is that? That's what it means by evidence. 
It said in verse 4, read it again. Your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. They were enduring persecution. They were enduring affliction. That word for affliction is flipsis, and it means pressure. All the pressures that were coming on them. But they were steadfast, and they were faithful, and they were enduring. And he says, that's evidence that y'all are being fitted for the kingdom. God's getting you ready for what he's got for you to do. When we suffer, it demonstrates that God was righteous in his judgment by saving us, right? He justified us. You can say, how could you save those people and give them the, the kingdom? That doesn't seem right. But then as we suffer for his name and as we endure and we lean into the Holy Spirit, it becomes demonstrated to the whole world, to the host of heaven even. They do belong to Jesus. He has done something in them. It also is evidence that the judgment of God's vengeance is righteous. But we'll talk about that in just a minute. So, this is important for us to know before we move forward. Your suffering for Christ is a joy when you have it in proper perspective. And the New Testament has an incredible range of what that suffering means. You have on one end Stephen, the one who was martyred and stoned for his faith. In the middle, you've got Paul being run out of town over and over again. You've got the apostles being beaten. You've also got, and Peter talks about this an awful lot, being maligned or insulted for the name of Jesus. Remember what Jesus said in the Beatitudes? Blessed are you when they revile you and say all kinds of wicked against you for my name's sake. So you say, well, we're not being persecuted. It's just insults. The Lord says, that counts, baby. And that is that is filling up your account, your treasures in heaven. And then when you stand before the Lord, he'll say, hey, you maybe didn't suffer the lash against your back, but you had to endure 30, 50, 60 years of people reviling you for being a Christian. You put that in proper perspective, you see some terrible op-ed published in whatever newspaper, and you say, hey, maybe we're worthy. Maybe we're worthy to, be, to suffer for the name of Jesus. Which also tells us that those in the church who refuse to suffer and just cannot accept that this is coming their way, y'all got to check your heart. If the thought of somebody insulting you for the name of Jesus or being fired for standing for righteousness or not being able to access certain opportunities, if that just fills your heart with fury and you get angry and you want to fight and you want to tear all that down, hold on a minute. Romans 8.19 says that if we do not suffer with him, we will not be glorified with him. Now, that is, a, that is a heavenly perspective. That is viewing the world through God's eyes. And so a Christian in the church who is unable to view such things through God's eyes, you might need to get on your knees and say, Lord, I have no joy when I'm insulted and reviled. All I have is anger and fury. And I want to get back at him, Lord. How many of y'all saw the, the movie that came out a few years ago about the Apostle Paul? Anybody see that one? There's an amazing moment in that where Paul's in prison and a bunch of young hothead Christians, not in the Bible, but who knows, it's just a movie. They, they break into the fortress where he is and they say, Paul, we're here to bust you out. And he says, what are you doing here? They say, we come in the name of Christ. And they've all got swords and everything else. And there's a moment where Paul just stares at him and his eyes are blazing. He goes, you take up arms in the name of Christ? And it kind of shook me a little bit because I know how that feels. You're going to come at me because I'm a Christian? I'm going to flex my rights all over you people. I'm coming at you. You're not, this cannot be allowed. But the Lord's like, hey, don't be surprised. Those who refuse to suffer, you got to look out and let the Lord show you what that really means. 
I grew, I'll tell you what I grew up with. I grew up with people coming in the church and standing in the pulpit and saying things like, the American church has grown soft and corrupt because we have never faced persecution. Now it starts to build up and everybody's panicking. Like, I thought this is what we needed. I thought this is what we should expect. Luke 6, 26 says, beware when all men speak well of you, because that's what they did to the false prophets. But you know what they did to the real prophets? They sawed them in half. They stoned them. They cut off their heads. And the Bible says, people like that, the world was not worthy of them. So what you're experiencing now, maybe just lightly, maybe some more than others, maybe down the line it'll get worse, maybe the Lord will show mercy and turn it all around. I don't know. But it has a purpose and it has a goal. And the Thessalonians were carrying on because they kept their eyes fixed on the goal. And we've got to do the same thing. Amen? But as I said, when you get to verse 6, it it takes it out of the present, which is what we're suffering, and it launches us into the future, to that day with a capital D, when the kingdom is established. And what's going to happen when Christ the Avenger comes to settle the accounts of men? So let's read verses 6 and 7. And verse 6, here's one that you can hold on to when people are giving you a hard time for being a Christian. Since indeed, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. So this is continuing the description that we saw in verse 5 of the righteous judgment of God. It's righteous. Yes, God considers it just righteous. It's, it's the same word there, same word family. To repay with affliction those who afflict you. I just talked about suffering as a Christian. It's difficult to accept suffering and persecution when the only explanation you have is it's good for you. Right? Well, it's good for you. It builds character. Didn't you love it when your dad said that to you when you were growing up? Dad, the baseball hit me in the face. Well, it's good for you. You won't be so scared next time. Now, that might be true, but it's kind of hard to accept. I've said that exact thing to my son, so don't feel bad. And we cry out to God. And I want to let you know also, it's okay to cry out to God when you're hurting. Don't feel like you've got to suck it up and, you know, buckle down. Everything's okay. Revelation chapter 6, verse 11, you see a vision of all the martyrs throughout history. And they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? We know it's not fair. And our heart cries out, this is so not right. We see what's going on in places like Nigeria or Afghanistan around the world and the way Christians are are, are put through the grindstone. And we say, it's not fair. That's not right. Lord, how long? The blood cries out from the ground like the blood of Abel. And those verses remind us, the next verse the Lord says, not yet. Just wait. He says that there's a full measure that has to be filled up before I will avenge them. God's paying attention. Romans 12, 19 says, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. We always get in trouble when we want to be the ones executing vengeance, huh? We don't get it right. Well, I'm going to repay them for what they've done to me. That's how generational conflict begins. Your suffering for Christ is piling up evidence in your favor. Think about that. That the more you suffer for the name of Jesus, the more evidence is piling up in your favor before the Lord and against those who afflict you. That when you stand before the judge, before the 
the Lord Jesus Christ, when he comes with his mighty angels, that there will be evidence that you belong to him and evidence that they have afflicted you and are deserving of judgment. There's a different perspective for you. Because someday it says God will repay everyone. You can see this, the flow here in English. It's a little more clear in Greek where he says, to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief. That word grant is actually not there in the text. They repeated it so that you could follow the flow. But he's saying there, to repay affliction to them and to repay relief to you. So he's repaying two things. The persecutors are being repaid with affliction and the persecuted are being repaid with relief or the word rest. Every unfairness you have ever endured is remembered in heaven. Can you say amen? Every unfairness you have ever endured is remembered in heaven. And God's going to settle accounts. Look at verse 6 again. You, you almost feel a little naughty reading that verse. Because he says, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. And you get a little smile and you try to suppress it. It's like, God says, it's only fair that the person that afflicted you gets some affliction from me. So then the next time somebody's reviling you for the name of Christ, you remember verse 6, and the Lord says, it's only right in my eyes that they receive affliction for afflicting you. That's in the Bible. Take that home. Hang on to that. Remember that. Because when the pressure comes and you feel like there's no escape and there's no getting out of it, the Lord's like, don't worry, I see that. Don't worry, I'm a just judge. When Jesus returns from heaven with his mighty angels, it's our day of vindication. You will be proven before everybody and before all of creation that you did belong to Christ and you were in the right and that what you suffered was wrong and not fair. A lot of times you want to get that vindication now. But the Lord's like, you just hold on. It's coming. Every defiant child that threw your gospel right back in your face, every parent that got angry, when you got religion, because you think you're better than me now. Every atheist who's ever scoffed at you. Every terrorist that's ever tried to blow up Christians. Every backstabbing friend who's like, I just can't hang anymore. You, you've changed. You're not the same. They are all going to see that you are indeed a child of the king on that day. You will come in glory with the Lord. There will be a crown upon your head. And they will see that. That your Lord is there. And he's going to hold them in judgment for what they've done to you. You've got somebody on your team, and his name is Jesus Christ. We say, well, Lord, why are you waiting? Because God's trying to show mercy. Aren't you glad God waited at least as long as it took for you to get saved? We, we, we're funny like that, aren't we? we? We come into prayer like, Lord, you need to, get, you need to rapture us now, and that time is now. It's got to be now. And the Lord's like, well, you got saved 11 years ago. What about the folks that were praying 12 years ago that now is the time? The Lord's like, I'm trying to save people. The Bible talks about God filling up the measure of those who will be saved. The fullness of the Gentiles who will come in, the Bible says. He's showing mercy because once the Lord returns, it's justice, not mercy. So you've got to take your eyes off yourself a little bit and say, I can put up with this affliction because God's trying to save that person. And know in your heart, the only thing that is keeping that person from the fires of hell is God's mercy. And that the way they're treating you is piling up evidence against them that they, in fact, deserve that judgment. Mercy. But it's not going to be like that forever. The world is upside down now. Those who have the good news are treated like outcasts. And the wicked are raised up and held up as the examples. How many times in the Psalms does he say, Lord, it's upside down. The wicked prosper and the righteous falter. 
That's all going to be made right when Christ returns. Psalm 37, 34 says, Wait for the Lord and keep His way, and He will exalt you to inherit the land. And you will look on when the wicked are cut off. What was the first word of that verse? Wait. Wait. You might say, hold on. And the Lord will exalt you and you will watch the wicked cut off. That whole Psalm 37, we all need a heavy dose of that in our lives. The first line is, fret not yourself because of evildoers. Most of us spend most of our days fretting about some evil thing that someone is doing. But you've got to keep a heavenly perspective in your life. You're going to enter the kingdom in glory. So isn't that worth the pain that we face now? Isn't that worth being ostracized? Isn't that worth being insulted? Isn't that worth even being beaten? Isn't that worth being kicked out of your house and sent into the streets? Isn't it worth being hungry and destitute and in prison? Isn't it worth being executed and crucified? Those who have gone before us certainly thought so. So number one, I hope this encourages you that when you suffer for the Lord Christ, it's going to be worthwhile someday. And that we as a nation and we as a, as a worldwide community of Christians, it's all going to be worth it someday. So that's encouraging. It's not pointless. There's a purpose. Number two, I hope it compels you to keep going. I'm not just encouraged. I'm, I'm, I'm steadfast. I'm moving on. And it should put a song of praise in your mouth, number three. Because you've got an avenger that's coming to take care of you. Your suffering is not pointless now, and it's going to be vindicated later when Christ Jesus returns. And he's going to repay with affliction those who have afflicted us. And that, this passage might not be so dear to us right now, but how do you think this passage reads to the underground church in China? Or Christians in other parts of the world that cannot even publicly say that they're a believer or their house is going to get burned down. And they read something, the Lord considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. When someone comes into the church, this isn't fair. God isn't good or you wouldn't let us go through those things. We need to know and understand these passages and have them in our hearts so that when the day comes, we're prepared to handle it. Teach it to our children. Teach it to one another. <laughs> you get saved, everything's just going to be smooth sailing. You're going to get rich. You're going to have everything you've ever wanted. You're never going to have any problems again. Everyone's going to love you. Look at Jesus. Did Jesus have any of that? He certainly did not. Oh, well, they loved Jesus for a while. They loved him until he said things they didn't like. It's the same thing with you and me. So that's the vindication. Let's get on to verses 8 and 9 now. And this is when it gets heavy. So continuing the sentence from verse 7, when Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. So this is still describing what we saw from verse 5, the righteous judgment. Well, this is what you might call the negative end. Righteous judgment. We are being judged faithful, but there will be some that will be judged unfaithful and they are going to be punished for it. When Jesus Christ returns, it'll be in flaming fire. Revelation chapter 6, verses 16 and 17. It describes people recognizing that the wrath of God is being poured out and they called out for the mountains to fall on them and hide them. Because they knew what was up, but it was too late. Who is going to receive the flaming vengeance of God? He tells us right there, two groups of people, they're really one. Number one is those who do not know God. 
Number two is those who do not obey the gospel. These are really the same group. I suppose there's a difference. Those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel. But Romans chapter 1, verse 18 says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So you don't get to say, well, they never heard. God himself has said, I have given them enough to start seeking. And the Lord also said that everyone who seeks, what? Finds. I'm sure you've heard the testimonies of people in these Islamic countries who are getting saved through visions and dreams and angels. So the whole idea that God can't save somebody if a missionary can't get into the closed country is nonsense. We serve a sovereign, powerful Lord. Revelation talks about there's going to come a time when God uses angels flying in heaven as his evangelists. So God is more than capable. And for that reason, every man, woman, and child is held accountable to know God and to obey the gospel. The Jews knew who God was, but they didn't obey the gospel, which demonstrated they didn't really know God, did they? And you might say, well, I obey the gospel, but do you know God? Because you can't do one without the other. There is enough light for every person to see God. And everyone who seeks finds. It, it boils down to, do you believe what God said or don't you? God has done everything that is necessary to save everyone, but not everyone will be saved. Now some people could look at this, and I've heard this preached this way, leaving the entire gospel element out of it, and just want to talk about suffering. The oppressed will be delivered on that day. So every people group that's ever been put down, every culture that's ever been colonized, they're going to they're gonna be delivered on that day. And, and people will use either oppressor and oppressed as their two moral categories. Now, God's got a lot to say about oppression, but look at it right there. What is the grounds of judgment on that day? It is obedience to the gospel. So I'm suffering, I deserve relief. Listen, God hurts for you. He wants you to deserve relief. But listen, you deserve vengeance too. You can't say that you're blameless. Look at yourself. Look at your own life. You know you're a sinner. So why haven't been that bad? It's not about what you've done. What matters is that you are a well that sin bubbles up from. You put a bucket into your heart, you're going to pull out water with sin in it. Say, well, it's only a little bit of sin, but it's only a little bit of poison in your well? It's not because of what you do. It's because of who you are. How many people have you hurt in your life? How many people have had a worse day because they've encountered you? How many people have you lied to? How many people have you been angry at without a cause? You know, Jesus said that if you insult your brother you'll be in danger of hellfire. Jesus said that. And if you reject the mercy of God, which is being extended to you right now, only justice remains. And people are foolish. They say, well, I just want God to judge me fairly. No, you don't. I promise you that you don't. Because you are not righteous. You don't even know me. I don't have to know you. I know people. There is none righteous, not even one. I think we've seen this over and over again with how many of our heroes that we've loved and looked up to, and you find out after they've died a few things that they got into that were not in character with their public face. 
and it can break your heart. But really, all that tells us is there is none righteous. Well, I don't do those things. I just think about them. Well, it's in you. Where did it come from? When someone insults you and you start thinking in your mind how easy it would be to murder them and get away with it. When someone walks by who's not your wife and you start thinking all the possibilities of how we could commit adultery and not get caught. Well, I didn't do anything, but it's in you. Where did it come from? That's sin in your heart, and that's what God is going to judge. Not the list of stuff you did, but the nature of being a sinner. Only justice remains for those who reject mercy. And he tells us what the penalty is right here. Eternal destruction. This is the opposite of eternal life. Now, there are two bad ways of looking at that term. And they both try to escape what it actually means. The first one is called annihilationism. Have you heard of this? This is the belief that when you die, the Lord is going to destroy your soul. You will be annihilated. You will no longer exist. Some people believe that it will happen immediately. Some people believe that after you have burned off all of your sins in hell, then you will be destroyed and cease to exist. And there are some godly men who, unfortunately, have fallen into this. Guys like John Stott, who ought to know better. Eternal destruction. Well, well, the word is destruction. We all know what destroy means, but it's eternal destruction. It's forever ongoing destruction. There was a guy, one of the first phone calls we ever got as a church, a guy named Nelson who called from a blocked number, and he was lying on the phone. And he said, hey, I've been listening to your Bible studies, and I love them so much. And, you know, I'm a new Christian. I've been reading my Bible, and I have some questions. You know, you, you say that people will, will die and they'll, they'll live forever in hell, but Jesus said that you can only have eternal life in Jesus. So how is somebody going to live forever if they don't know Jesus? And he's going on and on, very obviously not a new believer, very obviously with an axe to grind. And so I called him out on it. I said, I think you know exactly how I'm going to answer this question, and I think you know that that is not what I teach, that you can have life apart from Christ. And but he didn't let me finish, and he starts yelling and ranting at me and, I'm asking a real question. I said, no, you're not. I said, you're, you're trying to bother me. You're trying to trap me into saying something that I don't believe. I said, you're an annihilationist, and you're wrong. And he starts yelling and getting all upset, and I hung up on him because I'm not going to sit there. And he calls me back again from a block. Now, that was really rude, man. Just, I'm calling with a Bible question. I said, no, you're not. I said, you're, you're probably calling every pastor in the book, trying to get them to be uncomfortable, and you're probably recording this and going to post it on your blog. So I don't have time for this right now and hung up on him again. And Nelson never called back. But every now and then I pray for Nelson. I don't know why his name sticks in my head, but it does. Nelson the Annihilationist. <laughs> but it's not the case. Jesus says that when you go to hell, the, the fire is not quenched and the worm does not die. We're going to read in a little bit. Jesus said, go into everlasting fire. Well, God is too merciful to allow somebody to suffer forever. You maybe have learned the mercy of God, but have you learned the justice of God? The other one is universalism. This is the belief that there is no such thing as eternal destruction. Either everyone's going to be saved because God loves everybody so much, or people will suffer in hell until they've burned off all their sin, and then they will be saved. Again, people who ought to know better leaned into that. C.S. Lewis got into that idea a little bit. This is the doctrine of purgatory that, of course, the Roman Catholic Church teaches. And there's variations of all these things, but 
you read it right in front of you. Eternal destruction. Permanent, conscious torment in hell. 1 Thessalonians 4.17 says that when we die and the Lord raptures us, we will always be with the Lord. That heaven is described by being constantly and forever in the presence of Jesus Christ. But it says here that the wicked are cast away from the presence of the Lord. The ultimate punishment. Cast away from the presence of the Lord. There will be no party in hell. There will be no chance to escape hell. You will not be with your friends. Well, as long as I'm with the people I love, I don't care if we're, we're being tormented. No, my friend. You are being cast away from the presence of God. Hell will be solitude, gnawing pain by yourself forever. The quietest place on earth is what's called an anechoic chamber at Ortfield Labs in Minnesota. Anechoic means it doesn't echo. The quietest place on the earth, it registers at negative 9.5 decibels. Negative sound. And because when you go into this room, your ears adjust to the quiet of the room, you can hear your heart pumping. You can hear your lungs working. You can hear your stomach processing your food. People that go in there become disoriented and cannot remain standing for longer than 30 minutes. If you go into that room for at least 30 minutes, they require you to take a chair because you'll fall over. You'll lose all orientation to the room around you. The longest anyone has been able to stay in before panicking and needing to get out is 45 minutes. That's probably closer to hell than anything we've ever experienced before. Alone, silent, nobody there, and nobody will ever be there. Alone to ponder and gnaw upon the bones of your old life. Life without the constant presence of the Holy Spirit working around you, without the presence of God's angels working to mitigate your suffering. By yourself, people will ironically receive exactly what they want in hell. They want life without God, that's what they're going to get. And it's going to be nothing but themselves forever. According to a study that the Barna Group did in 2003, most Americans do not expect to experience hell. Half of 1% of Americans expect to go to hell. Half of 1%. Two-thirds of Americans, 64%, believe they will go to heaven. 5% believe they'll be reincarnated as another life form. And another 5% believe they'll simply cease to exist. Almost everyone thinks they're going to heaven. And almost no one believes they're going to hell. This, by the way, ought to tell you something. When the world tells you that everyone has just abandoned the idea of an afterlife and it's outdated and nobody thinks it, they're simply wrong. 95% of people believe in some kind of afterlife. So the idea that we're, we're foolish to believe this, if we're fools, so is 95% of America. But 64%, two out of every three people you meet, are you going to heaven? Yes. And only one out of every 200 thinks they're going to hell. Hell is real. 
It is the final destination of all who refuse the grace of God. You will have an entire lifetime of God reaching out with His Holy Spirit to draw you to Himself, hearing the gospel message, encountering Christians, seeing Bible verses, singing Christmas songs, hearing the message, and then refusing it, rejecting it, laughing at it, afflicting those who preach it, and then you will stand before the same God that you scoffed at, and He will say, away with you! Into solitude, into everlasting fire where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Not only alone, not only in silence and darkness, the Bible says, but in flames of fire, worms, maggots eating you all the time. Hell. Well, I don't think it's right to scare people and, and try to get them to be saved that way. You're a fool if you believe that. Hell is a horrifying place. You ought to be scared. You ought to be petrified. You ought to be laying awake at night, scared that you might pass away from this life into the next knowing that there might be hell waiting for you on the other side. Every bitterness that you have nurtured, every petty act you've ever thrown in somebody's way, every time you've manipulated somebody, every time you were violent, every debauchery that you laughed off is just part of growing up, every lie you told, every lust, every gluttonous action, every time you were lazy will be fully repaid forever in hell. away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. Hell is not the anti-heaven. It is anti-existence. It is anti-everything. No pleasure, nothing good, no relief. Verse 10. When He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Jesus Christ is coming as an avenger. He's going to vindicate the righteous and he's going to bring vengeance upon those who have rejected his grace. When? Well, he tells us in verse 10. It says at the beginning of the verse, when he comes on that day. Those words, on that day or in that day, are actually the end of that Greek verse. He ends by saying, in that day. This is an important biblical phrase to know. There, the Old Testament over and over again uses the phrase, the day of the Lord, the Yom Adonai, to describe the day when the Lord intervenes. And there are, there are several smaller days of the Lord when the Lord judged Edom or when the Lord judged Babylon or Assyria or Israel. But there is a great day with a capital D of the Lord coming when Jesus Christ will judge all men. And it says he will be first of all glorified and second of all marveled at. Glorified among his saints. That also could read in his saints. That could mean that you, as the workmanship of God, Ephesians 2.10, will be a testimony to all of creation of the glory of God. That God is not only glorified by you, but he's glorified in you. That when people look at you, it glorifies the Lord. And he will be wondered at, marveled at. The word is thaumatso. Every time in the Gospels where it says they were astonished, at what Jesus had done. It's the same word. When it talks about signs and wonders, it comes from the same word, thaumatso, to be wondered at. And everyone will glorify God. doesn't matter your salvation status. You can reject Jesus all your life, but Philippians 2.10 says that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Some will do it with joy. 
never wanting to get up again, and some will be forced to their knees, inevitably having to declare who is the real king. And that is when Jesus will repay relief to those who deserve it and affliction to those who have afflicted them. This is what Jesus described in Matthew 25 as the sheep and the goats. He tells a parable. He said, when the Son of Man comes, so this is the same day we're talking about. This is when he comes to establish the kingdom, the end of those seven years. When he returns, Matthew 25, he says he'll separate the nations before him like a, like a shepherd who separates the sheep and the goats. And he will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Can't you hear that? The Lord's saying, come and inherit the kingdom. It's been waiting for you all this time. And verse 41, he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. I get chills just thinking about it. Of Jesus Christ sitting on his throne and turning to his left. The smile from looking at, at the sheep, the righteous fading. And the hard brow of Jesus Christ turning to these people and pointing his finger at you and saying, depart from me. Get out of here. Go away into everlasting fire. And these will go away, verse 46, into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. There will be many who find themselves on the left side of Jesus at that moment and will see others that they know belong there and they will begin to panic and realize, I'm on the wrong side. I'm on the wrong side. And they will see Jesus turn to them and say, depart from me. And the Bible says there will be many on that day that will fall to their knees and say, no, Lord, it's me. I did all those. I was, I was a Christian. I went to church. Lord, I tithed. I went on mission trips. I wrote books. You have to have heard of me. I prayed to you. I cast out demons in your names. Lord, please, grabbing at his robe, and an angel grabs him and pulls them away, and Jesus says, depart from me. I never knew you. How many? Many. Many. I would put it this way. Most of the Christians you've ever encountered will be hauled away, panicked and kicking and screaming into everlasting fire, completely caught by surprise into that solitude and darkness and the fire and the worms that do not die. Jesus said, it is not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. Not everyone who sings and closes their eyes and raises their hands. Not everyone who serves on a committee and goes on mission trips. He says, that's not what it takes. Those who do the will of my Father in heaven, those who are willing to take up that cross and suffer for Jesus' name. Sometimes you want all the benefits and all the blessings and all the glory of following Jesus. We don't want to take up the cross, though. And Christianity starts at the cross. It starts with death. We don't build up to that moment. If you're waiting to build up to the day that you're going to die to yourself, you ought to be terrified driving home that you might get hit and find yourself standing before Jesus right away. Well, Lord, I was going to get to it. What about the man that, that built those big barns to hold all that, that crop harvest he'd brought in? And it says the Lord looked at him and said, You're a fool. Tonight your soul is required of you. And then what's going to happen to all that stuff you worked for? 
well, I just don't have time. I'm so busy right now. Work is just, is just killing me. Yes, it is. Well, I, I've got things at the house that I've got to work on, and I don't have time to do it except, you know, on Sunday mornings, and so I can't. And because I haven't been in church in 10 years, I haven't prayed, and I haven't read my Bible. So I, I said a prayer in VBS when I was a kid. When the kingdom is established, God's vengeance will be satisfied. And the only thing that will make a difference, according to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, is belief and obedience to the gospel of Jesus Christ. You don't get to pile up your stuff, your evidence. Lord, what about all these things I did? The Lord says, get those things out of here. They never meant anything to me because they never meant anything to you. Your sins must be paid for because your sin is the blight in the fabric of reality. Philosophers sit there and ponder, what is wrong with the world? Why is it this way? It's you. You are the problem. You are what has brought darkness and curse to this world. You are the one that has been barreling through life, hurting people all around you. And if you haven't, you've been nurturing those things in your heart. People do that, you know. People that you, that you would never suspect. They think, oh, they're such a nice kid. They're so quiet. They don't ever say anything. But they take all the wrongs that are done to them, and they take them home, and they nurture them, and they look at them, and they polish them. They obsess over them, and it begins to build darkness in their heart. And then they show up to school, and they've got a gun in their hand, and they start blasting people because they say, I've had it. And they thought they were so fine. Everybody thought they were so nice. They were so kind and sweet and quiet. But there was darkness and sin in their heart, and it came raging out of them because they didn't give it over to Jesus Christ. You are the curse, and that curse must be judged. God would not be right to let it go and just say, oh, I guess it's fine, because it's not. Every evil that has ever come upon this world has not been perpetrated by you, but has been perpetrated by people like you with the same problem you have. But I have good news. The Lord saw these people. The Lord saw us in that darkness. And these were his people that he created. You look at your children. You ever go into your kid's room and just look at them while they sleep? And you just get right in front of them on the bed and you look at them. And they kind of stir and you kind of be quiet so they don't notice you're there. And you, you kind of look at the way they've grown, and you remember what they were looked like. Some, something about kids, when they get a little bigger, when they sleep, they, they, like, they de-age like five or six years. They make those same little faces they used to make when they were kids. The Lord looked at us like that. And he saw us, and he said, I know what's waiting for them. I don't want to send my creation into eternal darkness Eternal solitude would break his heart. And the Lord, in his Trinitarian council, thought, what can be done? Because the psalm says, no man can ransom the life of another. Because if you were to pay the penalty for sin, it would be for you. So the Lord said, we need somebody that can take the penalty upon themselves. So there would have to be a man, but there is no man. 
but they would have to be more than man because in order to pay for more than one life, they would have to have eternal life within themselves. In order to absorb all those sins, there would have to be an abundance of eternal righteousness to overcome those things. But who is such a man? And the Lord said, I will pay the penalty myself. And on Christmas Day, all those thousands of years ago, a little baby was born named Jesus. And when he was born, the angels sang in the heavens and a new star began to shine. And he grew up just like you and me because he had to know what it was to be a man. He lived as a man. And then when the Lord put his Holy Spirit upon him, he began to teach. And he showed us what was wrong and what was right. And don't think that Jesus just came teaching all nice things. Jesus showed up saying, you've heard it said not to murder. I say that if you hate anybody, it's the same thing. And they said, where did he get this authority from? Where did he get this teaching from? And he's helping lame people walk who've never walked before. He's opening the eyes of the blind. People are bringing their demon-possessed kids, and the demons are coming screaming out of them at his name, just at his word. But when he came to Jerusalem, the people rejected him because he was not what they wanted. What did they want? They wanted a political leader. They wanted somebody who was going to handle their material problems. He just doesn't understand. And the people are going to follow after him. And the more the people follow after him, the more it's going to draw Rome's attention. And then Rome will crack down. He needs to die. And then his best friend betrayed him over to those people for a couple bucks. And he was beaten, and he was insulted, and he was maligned, and his beard was ripped out, and he was slapped around, and they made fun of him. They said, hey, you're a prophet, right? Who's going to hit you next? Pow. Oh, you got it wrong. Round two. Let's try it again. Oh, he's a king. Let's take these thorns, and we'll press them down on his head in mockery of the Son of God right in front of them. Well, if God came to us, we'd listen to him. He did, and we nailed him to a tree. We stretched out his arms and we drove nails into his hands in between those two bones in your hands so that it would hold him up when they raised him up above the ground. And his rib cage began to collapse on his lungs so he could hardly breathe. So he had to push himself up off that nail in the middle and it would rip deeper and deeper into his flesh as he did that. And even while he's on the cross, they're mocking him. Oh, hail, king of the Jews. If you're so holy, why don't you get down? We're really scared because you might come down and get us. And Jesus died on that cross. And the whole creation groaned. The earth shook. Darkness fell over the land. Tombs popped open. And prophets started coming out. The veil of the temple was ripped in two. And Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, two Jews who had been kind of disciples, on the outside, He's got some good things to say, but I'm too scared to really step up. They took his body down from the cross. They prepared it for burial. They took the broken body of Jesus, covered with all that blood, all the sweat, all the water that came out of the hole in his side. And they, knowing that during life, his life they didn't have the courage to stand with him, began to wash the body of Jesus, to wash the holes in his arms and the hole in his side to straighten the hair back where all the thorns had dug into his skull. And they wrapped him up and they laid him down in Joseph's own tomb. And there was a big old stone rolled in front of it. That's what you deserved, Christian. That's what all of us deserve. 
And the Pharisees knew that Jesus had told his disciples, on the third day I'm going to rise again. So they said, you know what we'll do? We'll put a guard. We'll, we'll put some soldiers with some AKs in front, of the, in front of the tomb to make sure nobody comes and tries to trick us. But when Sunday morning came, and the sun came up over the horizon, there was a streaking flame of fire coming down from heaven as an angel came down in brilliant light and rolled that stone away. And out of that tomb came Jesus Christ, scarred but alive. And he began to tell his disciples, I've done it. I can now offer you that same thing. Well, Lord, what do I need to do? He said, you can't do anything. It's free. I'm giving it to you. That's all that it takes. If you throw yourself at Jesus' feet and ask for forgiveness, he'll grant it to you. You've got to repent. You've got to turn around, walk differently, think differently. Well, I could never be saved. Persecutors can be saved. Look at Paul, the one who wrote this. He was on his way to Damascus to haul Christians off to prison and maybe to death. And the Lord struck him with blindness for a few days so he could think about what he'd done. He said, I am the Lord Jesus whom you are persecuting. And he filled him with his Holy Spirit and he changed the world with that man. The love of God has extended that same mercy to you, but the day of justice is coming. Jesus is coming back. And if you are a Christian, if you believe in Jesus, you're on his team, it'll be a day of vindication. You can endure with joy. I can endure suffering because the day is coming. And that's the day I'm living for, not this day. But if you are lost, Christ is coming back and he's going to destroy you. You must repent and you must believe. Because the Lord is an avenger. He's a repayer. And how you will be repaid is up to you for now. That will not always be the case. If you bow the knee to Jesus today, you will be saved and the day of darkness will become a day of light for you.